Good morning, fellowship. My name is Beth Kenyon, and I am very pleased to welcome each of you this morning. We're glad you've chosen to worship with us. If you are new this morning or have come back after being, being away for a long time, we would love to greet you in the foyer after the service. Or you may text this number and somebody from our staff will call and talk to you this week. There is always a ton happening at Fellowship, and there are many ways you can keep up to date with what's happening. And whichever way you choose to use, keep checking back to see what's coming. Happy Fourth of July! (laughs) This week, as I've been thinking and reading about Independence Day... I've been just so grateful for the many, many people that have worked so hard and continue to work hard so that we can enjoy independence with everyone, for everyone. I learned a fact that I had, was not aware of. On the first 4th of July, they celebrated two things. They celebrated independence from Britain, but they also celebrated Our forefathers understood how much we need each other. And I think this year we have discovered again how desperately we need each other. This day, I hope you have a chance to huddle together with your family and thank God for our interdependence and for our dependence, our independence. There is always... Um, a chance to invite one more couple to merge. Merge starts next week. And if you're planning to come, we're excited. Don't forget. And if you have meant to invite somebody, you still have one week to invite them. The Samaritan Community Center, our partner in ministry, has asked Fellowship to collect two things, colored pencils and loose leaf notebook paper. And um, if you will pick those up this week or over the next couple weeks, we will have bins in the foyer that you can, can bring those. And I'm thanking you in advance for doing that. We value worship and serving at Fellowship. And we've been talking over the last couple weeks of a couple ways that you could get involved. And today I'd like to highlight another one. Um, Our coffee bar, which we all enjoy our coffee before we come here, um, is looking for volunteers that would like to serve once a month with you or your family. And if you are interested, you can um, email Sarah Jensen and she'll tell you all about it. Would you please stand with me as I pray over um, us this morning? Oh, Jesus, thank you that we we can be here. Thank you for the independence that we have. And thank you for our interdependence on each other. Jesus, would you continue to use Hebrew to stir our hearts and give us a better picture of who you are and how much we need you. We love you, Jesus, and we want you to be a part of every single moment of this morning. Help us to listen to your voice in your precious name. Amen. Amen. Would you read this psalm aloud with us as our call to worship this morning? Psalm 95, a psalm of David. 
Let's pray this together. Come, let us sing for the joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker.
We serve a mighty God. This morning, as we continue to worship, we want to recognize that our hope can be found in Him alone. So may this be our prayer this morning. Christ, the solid rock, we place our hope in Him. Would you lift your voice and sing as Chris leads us this morning? Our hope is built, nothing less than Jesus' blood and His righteousness. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. Sing this in faith. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest flame, but holy trust in Jesus' name. Christ
dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless stand before the throne. Just imagine that day. Surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me. Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day for darkness is as light to you. Rest in the fact that he will hold us fast.
confidence that we have in your goodness and in your faithfulness. So as we approach your word this morning and as you teach us what true faith is and you show us examples of faith, God, would you inspire us by your example of faithfulness and the faithfulness of the people who've gone before us. So be with Nick as he teaches your word. God, teach us to trust in you and walk by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Well, I've gone over the last three times I preached, so we don't get an intro. I'm Nick. You're at Fellowship. We're studying Hebrews. Let's go. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. So in this whole, this whole book of Hebrews, the author has been challenging his reader, 
and us, in turn, to stick with Jesus. Because Jesus is better than anything else that's out there. So trust him. Cling to him. Don't let go of him. And now in chapter 11, the author is going to give us a picture of what that clinging looks like. What does that faith look like with flesh and bone? In, in real life, what does it look like to trust and walk with God? So that, that's our topic as we come to Hebrews chapter 11. And we read right out of the gate. There's a, there's a definition or a description of faith put forward. The author says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. It's a beautiful, concise, and clear description of faith. And yet, even in that little sentence, there's a lot to unpack. Uh, that first word, confidence, is a really interesting word. It's, it's, it's hard to translate and capture the full idea. It's a word that means something's essence or its nature, its it's foundational reality. In church history, a couple hundred years later, when they were searching for language to describe the incarnation, what happened when God became man in Jesus, they were trying to describe Jesus, and the language they came up with was that he is one person with two natures. Now, that, the word they used for nature to describe Jesus' divine and human nature, that's the word that right here gets translated confidence. So what is the author saying when he says that faith is the essence, the reality, the nature of things hoped for. Here's what, here's what the phrase seems to be saying. It's saying that by faith, something that is out there in our future becomes real to us right now. It's, it's taking some idea, some promise in the future and treating it like it's real today. So that's where you get to that word confidence. It's as if, if you have somebody that you work with that is the most reliable, faithful person you know, and there's a big task, and they say, hey, I've got that, and you can go, in your mind, it's as good as done. You can, you can write it off in your mind as being done because that person is so faithful. What, what the author's saying is that's what faith does, is faith takes the future promises of God and treats them like they're real today, like substantial, concrete, they can be counted on, Right now, faith is confidence in what we hope for. And then he says it's assurance in what we do not see. And that word assurance, it, it, it's the idea of, of proving something, almost like an illegal proof. It's, it's something can be, has been shown to be true, even though we can't see it. So notice the two ideas here of what we're trusting in. It's something that is future and something that we can't see right now. So this leads to a really interesting principle about what it means to trust God. It says that, it says that trust, faith trusts with imperfect knowledge. Faith trusts even when there are some things that we don't know how all of it's going to work out. It's future, it's unseen. There's elements that we don't have access to and yet, we're still called to trust. Now, notice that does not say that faith trusts without any knowledge. There's two ditches you could go into here, and one would be to think that faith is some kind of blind faith, whereby we trust God without any evidence or any reason to think he's trustworthy. 
It's a blind leap of faith. That is not what the scriptures call us to. It does not call us to a blind faith. In fact, this book is full of evidence that God can be counted on. Over and over again, we're shown God's trustworthy. And in fact, we could spend a whole lot of time defending and showing historically and philosophically and ethically all the reasons, all the very good reasons and evidence to trust. But the summary point, in fact, the author's gonna go on to give us a bunch of evidence of God's trustworthiness as people have trusted him. So we're not saying that you trust without any evidence. That's not what we're saying at all. Faith is grounded on very good evidence, very good reasons to trust God. But as one of my favorite professors, John Hanna, said, faith is not trust without any evidence, but it is trust without all of the evidence. Faith says, based on God's track record, I'm gonna trust him even if I don't have all the answers right now. He's proven trustworthy enough for me to keep trusting even in my current lack of complete knowledge. So faith is not blind trust. On the other hand, it's not trust based on some kind of scientific certainty. Okay, so the, the way science works, science is built on the idea of repeatability, right? Remember back to your like junior high science classes? What had to happen for an experiment to be valid? If somebody does an experiment and they say they've made a scientific discovery, another scientist has to be able to run the same experiment under the same conditions and get the same result. If they can't do that, it's not proven. Science requires that you can put it in a lab, test it again, and get the same result. Now, how are you going to put God in a lab and poke him and see if he'll respond the way you expect him to? You can't do that. Science is a wonderful tool for testing the natural world. It's not made for testing God. It's like trying to measure how tall someone is with a thermometer. It's the wrong tool for the task. So faith and science aren't in conflict with each other. They're both very appropriate instruments in their right space. And so we don't say that faith is blind. We also don't say that faith is based on having all of the answers tidied up and neat and tested and proven in a lab. Instead, the author of the Hebrews says that faith based on trustworthy evidence, continues to trust when our knowledge is incomplete. And what this means, and this is going to be horrifying for a lot of people, doubt is a necessary part of the life of faith. Reaching a point where you don't know what comes next, where you have a question about whether or not you can trust in this situation, and it may even cause a little bit of panic inside you. That's actually a normal part of growing. You see, if there was never an opportunity to struggle with faith, there actually wouldn't be faith. It's like my, my workout routine that I attempted for a long time. Have I told you about this before? You see, my thought was, was that I could exercise right to the point where I felt pain and stop. And that if I kept doing that, that point would get further and further, and soon enough I'd be running a marathon without ever having felt any pain? Does it work that way? No. To get physically in shape, 
Your body actually has to feel some pain in order to grow. For faith to grow, we actually have to reach a point where it's hard to trust God. If we never reach that point, our faith doesn't grow. And that means that letting people encounter, challenge, struggle, and doubt is a necessary part of people growing in faith. In fact, there's a group called the Fuller Youth Institute out in California with a researcher named Kara Powell, and what, they've written a book called Sticky Faith that I know a lot of people around here have read. And what they're always trying to do is they're trying to research what causes people who grew up in the church to stay believers once they're adults. That's the question that all the research is, is after. And one of the studies they did was they interviewed a whole lot of adults who had grown up in the church, and they said, did you have any doubts about your faith while you were a teenager? And guess what? They all said yes. So then they asked a follow-up question. In your church or your family, was it safe to talk about your doubts? And here was the bombshell result from that study. People who said, yes, I felt safe to talk about what I was struggling with, had a strong tendency to stay believers as adults. Those who said, no, I couldn't talk about my doubts, had a strong tendency to walk away from the faith. That means if we want to develop faithful people, we have to be the kind of place where talking about doubt and struggle is safe. Because sometimes we can be a little bit like the helicopter parent who doesn't want to see people struggle. And so we're like the kid who when they bring the math problem, the parent just grabs the workbook and solves the problem for them. You get the right answer and everyone feels better, but no one grew. And sometimes when people are in doubt or in struggle, we want to swoop in and remove the tension as quickly as possible. And what we do is we actually rob people of the chance to grow. And we send the message that doubting and struggling is not acceptable around here. Everyone needs to be certain and confident all the time. Hey, if, if you are in a season where you're wrestling or you know someone who is, can I recommend a great resource to you? It's a book called After Doubt by Professor and Pastor A.J. Swoboda. Um, it is a really, really great book. There's an image of it that's going to come up on the screen. It's a fantastic book um, to just guide people through some of this process of how do we doubt well and grow well. Because there, Mark Shotson said this in a sermon last year, and I found it really helpful. There is a difference between someone who doubts and someone who is a skeptic. The person who doubts is facing something that makes it difficult for them to trust. The skeptic says, I refuse to trust until I have all my questions answered. Those are two very different things. By the way, if you're a skeptic and you're here, we're really glad you're here. In fact, I want to warn you, your days as a skeptic are probably numbered because God has an awesome tendency of turning skeptics into believers. So consider yourself warned. Welcome. We're glad you're here. But we need to be careful that we don't actually hide behind a kind of certainty about having all the answers that keeps us from ever really having to trust God. My brother-in-law is a climber. He does bouldering and mountain climbing. I was asking him about his climbing ropes, and he said they're rated for 1,800 pounds of force. I don't even know what that means exactly. But my guess is, that that rope would safely hold any person in this room. And in fact, I could probably walk up to somebody sitting in a chair right here and say, do you believe that this rope could hold you? And they could say, yeah, I have no doubt. I'm certain that rope would hold me. Now picture another person who because of some disaster has been stranded on a cliffside and a rescue worker has lowered that rope down to them. 
Instead, we want you to give your weight to that rope and step off the cliff. Now, that person may have so many questions and so many doubts. They might just be peppering the rescue worker, saying, I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't do this. But ultimately, they step off and give their weight to the rope. Now, here's the question. Who has more faith in the rope? The person sitting in the chair who is certain the rope could hold them or the person who actually gave their weight to the rope even while they were terrified? I'm gonna argue that it takes much more faith to actually trust God and step out and follow him when we're filled with doubt than it does to sit back and be confident we have the right answers but not actually follow him. And what Hebrews is gonna call us to is to be people who trust and follow God, even with imperfect knowledge. And so he moves on in verse two, and he says, this is what the ancients were commended for. So now he's gonna look back to the stories of the, the people who came before, who trusted the Lord as examples of faith. And the focus in the first part is that part of what we do not see. In verse three, he says, by faith, that's gonna be the phrase that holds this whole section together. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. And now the author's gonna give us all these examples of people who trusted God even when they couldn't see what was happening. And so in this next section, we're gonna learn that faith has to look to the past for inspiration. We need past examples of how people have trusted God. And and there's something, a little side note to recognize here. It's something that I think our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters have really gotten right. There is some wisdom in waiting till someone is dead to make a great example out of them. You see, we have this tendency, especially right now in Western Christianity, to create Christian celebrities. Heroes that we follow their social media accounts. We become fans. It's really weird for like pastors to have fans. That's just, that's odd. And so we'll have these people that we are fans of, that we follow, we get wrapped up in their personality and everything we're do- they're doing. I did it in college. I had my pastor I listened to and I followed him on Twitter because I wanted to see what his family was doing because it made me feel like I knew him. The problem is people aren't made to be worshiped. Pretty soon we start putting our faith in those people rather than the God they trust. And as long as we're making celebrities out of these people, they're gonna disappoint us over and over again. I have been so sad to see the number of those stories over the last couple of years of fallen Christian celebrities. The reality is we were never meant to do that. But here's what happens when we look to someone whose life is complete we can look at it more honestly and realistically and see them as broken, flawed people who trusted God. When we look to our Old Testament, do we find heroes of faith who are perfect? No, I mean, the big three of the Old Testament are Abraham, Moses, and David. Abraham tried to sex traffic his wife to get out of trouble. Moses murdered a guy, and David committed adultery and then had the the husband killed so he could cover it up. Like, these guys would not be allowed to lead an FSM small group at fellowship. And yet, they are put forward as the people to look to. Why? Not because they were so great, but because the God they trusted was so great. And we can see that flawed, imperfect people can rely on a really great God. 
And so that's what we're going to see as we look to this little tour of past people who trusted the Lord. We start in verse 4 with Abel. And we see, by faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks even though he's dead. So the first we have is Abel who made an offering to God and his brother killed him for it. And then in verse 5, we read about Enoch, a really mysterious figure who was just snatched up and didn't die, we're told in Genesis. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Now notice the the contrast that's being set up here between two different experiences of faith. Abel trusted God and was killed. Enoch trusted God and never died. Do you see the two opposites there? What's the point? Faith can play out in a lot of different ways right now. It can get a lot of different kinds of results in our life right now, even though the one God is faithful in all the situations. Let's keep reading. We come to Noah. By, in verse 7, by faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. Noah's in the middle of a desert, and he's told, build a boat because this whole place is going to be flooded. That sounds insane, unless the one who's telling you is really trustful, trustworthy. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. By faith, verse 8, by faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country, lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. Notice this about Abraham's story. He's told to come follow God. God takes him to this land, and he says, this is going to be yours. How much of that land does Abraham own as a home for himself when he dies? None of it. He doesn't have a home in the promised land when he dies. Everything that Abraham is promised is still future for him. He's living in tents as a nomad. And yet he trusted God, even though he couldn't see the fulfillment of that promise. Verse 10 says, For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And now we're going to turn to Abraham's wife, Sarah. By faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, I won't go into the biology of that, but trust me, she was, she was past the age she was going to have a kid, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. Again, you're talking to a 90-year-old woman who's supposed to get pregnant and have a kid. There's no evidence that that should be able to happen, but there's good evidence that God can be counted on. So which evidence are you going to count on in that situation? So Sarah trusted the Lord. Verse 12, and so from this one man, and he as good as dead, it's a kind thing to say about our patriarch, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. And then the author is going to give a summary statement where he's going to transition from talking about things not seen to things that are future. In verse 13, he says, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. 
They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on the earth. So there's going to be a shift in theme here. We've been looking to the past, but now the author is going to add this future element that while faith looks to the past for inspiration, it looks to the future with expectation. And so now we're going to start looking at at these examples of people who their faith was defined by knowing something was out there yet to come that could be counted on. So we come back to Abraham in verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Let's give it a little context in case we've forgotten the story. God promises Abraham he's gonna have this huge family that's gonna become a nation, and it's all gonna come through this one son, Isaac, this dear, treasured son. And then God says, now it's time to sacrifice your son. And this is an impossible situation. How do you trust God when God calls you in to a situation that seems to go against everything he said he's gonna do? Look at Abraham's response. Verse 19, it says, Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. When you're dealing with a God who never lies and a God who's able to do anything, and he calls you into an impossible situation, the most reasonable thing to do is expect the impossible. That is the most reasonable thing to do when you're dealing with God. And that's exactly what Abraham did. And then we move to Abraham's children. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshiped as he leaned on the top of his staff. Why? Is the thing highlighted in Isaac and Joseph's life, or Jacob's life the blessing of the children? Because Isaac and Jacob didn't receive the promised land either. So they were, in faith, passing the promise on to their children. Now think about that. You've lived your entire life with this understanding that there's a land that God is giving to you, and in your entire lifetime, you never receive it. And you have the faith to tell your kids, no, God's going to do it. That's why when we reach Joseph down in Egypt, there's a lot of great stuff that we could talk about in Joseph's life. Incredible acts of faith. But look at the one that gets highlighted. By faith, verse 22, by faith Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. Are you kidding me? Of everything from Joseph's life you could talk about, they highlight his funeral plans? Why? Because that, more than anything else, showed that he trusted the promise of God. When he was about to die in Egypt, he looked around with incredible confidence and said, God promised us the land, so don't bury me here. I know that at some point in some future day, our people will go back. So as an act of faith, he made his funeral arrangements based on God's promises. That was the level of future hope that Joseph had. And then we turn to Moses in the story of the Exodus. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child. They were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Think about that. Moses could have kept his mouth shut. 
and enjoyed the privilege, the comfort, the luxury of growing up in the palace. And instead, based on the belief that God had something better for his people in the future, Moses was ready to give up what was good now and take something worse for a future hope. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover, the application of blood, so the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. And now we come to the generation after the Exodus, the people of Israel being brought out of Egypt. We read by faith, verse 29, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell, like we studied in the book of Joshua, after the army had marched around them for seven days. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she was welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. The author of Hebrews is just going Genesis straight through the Bible at this point. He's reached Joshua, and then he gets overwhelmed and realizes he can't keep doing this. So then he says, what more shall I say? I don't have time to talk about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. He celebrates all of the examples in the Old Testament where God has shown himself faithful, has shown himself powerful and able to do the impossible. And then in verse 35, it takes a dark turn. Right after talking about resurrection from the dead, he says there were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. And in awe of their faith, he says, the world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. You see, the author to the Hebrews, doesn't want us to be mistaken by reading about all these victories to think that faith always means you experience the tangible benefits now. Sometimes that's what you get, but sometimes you get killed. Sometimes you lose the job. Sometimes you get healed, and sometimes healing doesn't come because the ultimate promise of our faith is yet future. So, We've talked about looking to the past for inspiration, the future with expectation, but there's also a reality that faith faces the present situation. And every different present situation has its own unique challenges. It is as if, I'm a visual person, and it is as if we have this solid line of the past where we can see God's faithfulness. We can watch it, we can trace it and see exactly what he's been doing. And we have this very solid picture of what God's gonna do in the future. But right now where we stand can often feel like a blank. Like I don't see what God's doing right here. I don't understand why this is playing out this way. And faith stands at this juncture and looks back, sees what God has done, looks to the future promise and what he will do 
and says, well, even if I don't see how this is gonna work out, I'm gonna take the next step in faith, trusting that he's gonna keep being the same kind of God he's always been and trusting that he will meet me in that future if I keep moving forward in faith. Now, I don't know the situations that everyone is in in this room. I don't know what that present circumstance looks like for you. There was a conversation I had about a month ago um, here on a Sunday morning that just really encouraged my heart. There's a, there's a woman in this body who has been married decades, married decades to her husband, and she lost him this year. And I saw her out in the foyer. She was here early before service, sitting in one of those chairs. And I went and sat down in the chair opposite of her and said, hey, how are you doing? And she said, I don't think I'm doing really well. Like, the grief is crippling me. It had been a few weeks after he had died. She said, everything feels hard. Like, getting out of bed feels hard. And I feel so pathetic. Like, I feel like if I trusted the Lord, I would be doing so much better than this. She said, this is the first Sunday I've been able to make it back to church. Isn't that sad? Isn't that pathetic? I just looked at her and said, no. You lost your husband. Of course you would be wrecked with grief. Of course getting out of bed would be hard. To get up this morning and drive to church to worship the Lord for the first time without your husband, that's an incredible act of faith in your present circumstance. That was trusting the Lord right where you were. Sometimes trusting the Lord might look like crossing the Red Sea. (laughs) And sometimes it might look like in the middle of grief, choosing to come to church this morning and worship. But faith chooses to trust in whatever current circumstance you're in. So what do we do with all this? How do we, how do we apply this? How do we, how do we walk in it this week? Here's the challenge I wanna give us. Five questions to, to meditate on. Now, I, I really, we, we, we don't have time to set aside the time it would take to meditate on these right now. So here's the challenge I wanna give our body. And I really mean this. I'm really asking us to do this. I'm committing to do this this week. At some point this week, set aside 20 minutes to sit down with these five questions. Snap a picture of it with your phone if you want. Go grab the slides off the internet, write it down. But here's five questions that I think we should pray through as a people following God this week. First of all, what are your current doubts or questions? What are the places where your knowledge or understanding of what God is doing is incomplete? And it's hard for you. You don't have to solve them. You don't have to resolve them or figure them out. Just acknowledge them. Acknowledge, hey, this is where I don't know right now. Secondly, what's your present situation? What is the place that God has you where you're having to trust him? And then, do you know of any examples from the scripture of people who've been in a similar place that you can look to for an example of what it would look like to trust God there? Fourth, what hope do you have in Christ? What future promise does Jesus give us That even if you're not experiencing those benefits now, those benefits speak to where you are, to give you hope right where you are. And finally, what would active faith look like this week? Maybe it's huge, maybe it's one small tangible step, but what would it look like to respond in trust to Jesus right where you are? Because 
when we turn the page and go to chapter 12, what we're going to see next week is the answer to all this is to fix our eyes on the one who went before us, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who trusted God enough to go to the cross. He can be trusted when everything else fails. Lord, we love you. We want to be people of faith. Lord, we want to have faith in whatever situation we find ourselves in because you are faithful. You've proven yourself faithful time and time again and you've promised that you'll do it again even when we don't understand what's happening right now. So Lord, we know you're holding on to us. Give us the faith to hold on to you. We love you and we praise things in Jesus' name. Amen.
like prayer this morning we have the thompsons in the prayer room they would love to pray with you over you this week to go in peace and love of christ this week